Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. So Christmas is just around the corner. It's that magical time of year where we celebrate the birth of Jesus by stringing up colorful lights, decorating our lawns with inflatable flying deer, guys in red coats, putting dead evergreens in our living rooms and wrapping them in all kinds of crazy stuff. Put little gifts in oversized socks, wrap other gifts in a shiny paper, go to lots of parties, we drink egg mixed with cream and sugar. We sing the same songs, watch the same movies, just with different actors. Hallmark Channel, thank you. We wear that same single sweater that we have that's been living rent-free in a drawer 364 days out of the year for that one party that makes you wear an ugly sweater that you have to keep all year round that you wouldn't even need if they stopped having ugly Christmas sweater parties. But it's sitting there. You get to wear that, so that's cool. Right? We bake lots of cookies. We eat lots of candy. This is a time of celebration. And it can be a little weird, the things that we do to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But regardless of the traditions, the practices, the things that you observe with your family and your house around this season, the one thing that we can all agree on is that the birth of Jesus is something we're celebrating. Because the birth of Jesus means the king has come. It means that light has come into the world. It means that our Savior has come. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the wise men coming to see uh, Jesus. But before we get into their arrival, we need to understand why they came at all. Why they came, why Jesus came. In Luke 2, the angels appear to the shepherds. They say, don't be afraid. We bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people that today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. And we get so excited about that. It's a passage, you know, every Christmas, somebody's going to read that passage. What's the implication? Everybody want to take a guess? Sorry, I forgot this church. We're not allowed to make noise. <laughs> the coming of a Savior implies that we need saving. Saving from what? Why do we need saving? When God created the world, we were made to live in community with God and in harmony with God. We were made to walk with God and talk with Him and have relationship with Him. And the world that God made was perfect. We wanted for nothing, needed nothing. There was no pain, no loss, no loneliness, no despair, no heartache, no death. We were made to dwell in the paradise that God created for us. And in that paradise, there was one rule. Not a difficult rule, not a cumbersome rule, just in a garden filled with trees that produce fruit, don't eat the fruit from that one tree over there. Like, I can follow that rule. But the rule was a choice. Honor God. 
Depend on God, obey God, or try to be God. We chose ourselves. So sin was born, and death came into the world. For sin brings death. Sin brings separation. Sin brings wrath. And that sin spread like an infectious disease, contaminating everything it touched. Because of sin, we were lost. So God promised a Savior. Because of sin, we were separated from Him. So God promised a Savior. Because of sin, we experienced pain and loneliness, loss and struggle. So God promised a Savior. This life is filled with suffering and rejection, sickness. So God promised a Savior. We were slaves to sin. So God promised a Savior. Trapped in sin. So God promised a Savior. We had no hope. So God promised a Savior because we could not save ourselves. So God promised a Savior. And after thousands of years of waiting and longing and hoping, the Savior that God had promised came into the world. And the response to him is kind of confusing. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. All right, so this is part of our classic nativity set. I want you to picture a nativity in your mind. If you struggle with internal visualization, we have a picture that we will provide for you. Here's our classic picture of the birth of Jesus. So you've got baby Jesus. He always has a glow, even though he's the only baby in the picture. Mary, who always got a nice little halo. You got the angels above, you got the star. Jesus is born in a barn surrounded by animals. You got the wise men, you got the shepherds. It's your classic picture of the nativity. A couple things. So, firstly, uh, Jesus wasn't born in a barn. Sorry to that. He's ruining Christmas. He wasn't born in a barn. See, Bethlehem is a town of 50, maybe 100 people. You don't have a lot of commercial real estate in a town that small. They had no need for an inn where people could come and travel. What they had was a cultural mandate for hospitality. So what would happen, right, in your home, you would have like a guest room. So when family or people came to visit, you have a place where they could stay. I know the Bible says there was no room in the inn. There's not an inn. The problem is when Joseph and Mary arrive... His relatives, who they would normally stay with, already had people living that, or staying in that little guest spot because of the census. So there was no room for them in the place where guests would normally stay. So their houses, when you first walk in, the first floor is dirt. And then they built up another level, a raised floor, where the family would eat and sleep and kind of dwell. That floor is full. So, because they couldn't stay where they would normally stay, they had to stay on the dirt floor. They didn't have a barn, it's not a little house on the prairie. Okay. What they would do was they would bring their animals inside at night because it gets cold, and the animals would stay on the dirt floor, and the heat from the animals would then raise up and serve as a sort of like low-tech HVAC unit. So because the upper floor was full, Jesus was on the lower floor, on the dirt floor, with Mary and Joseph. Second thing, when the nativity is pictured, you always see the shepherds and the wise men together. They would not have been there at the same time. The shepherds got the news of Jesus' birth night of the wise men arrive considerably later. Lastly, 
How many wise men were there? Three. You big dummy, how do you not know that? Your job is to talk about this stuff. What kind of idiot doesn't know how many wise men there were? Because we even have the old carol for it, right? Like, we three kings. Read verse one. What number do you see? Yeah. So, only thing we know about how many wise men there were is that it's plural. So, not one. That's it. That's the only thing we know. Could there have been three? Yes. Is that likely? No. There could have been a hundred wise men. So, why is it, if there's an unknown number, that they're always depicted and understood, why do we always think of them as being three? Because there are three gifts. Matthew is a Jewish writer who writes thematically. What that means is that he notes the gifts that are of relevance to the story. And the three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, have symbolic meaning about Jesus. That doesn't mean those were the only gifts. There could have been 20 gifts, or it could have been that a couple of guys were like, oh, I forgot to bring something. Let me go in with you. (laughs) There were three gifts of note. But from what Matthew's tale, there are not three kings. What there are are three responses to the coming Messiah. Verse 2. So this is talking about the wise men, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, more accurately probably troubled because of him, and assembled, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, or by no means the least of the rulers of Judah, for you shall, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the wise men come to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. Why? They saw the light. They followed the light. The light led them to Jesus because Jesus is the light. They're looking for the King of the Jews. Here's the thing, though. The Jews already had a king, not one appointed by God, but one appointed by the Romans. It's a guy named Herod. Hey, I remember that guy. He was there at the whole, like, crucifixion thing with Jesus. Different Herod. Oh, you're talking about the guy that Paul met with towards the end of his ministry. Different Herod. There are, in fact, four Herods in the New Testament. This is Herod number one. And despite the fact that he is king of the Jews, he does not know the word, the holy book of the Jews. So when this situation comes up, he's got to phone a friend. So he brings in the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes. These are the experts in God's word, the leaders of the people of God who are supposed to be the shepherds of the people of God. They're the experts in his word. Many of them spent their days copying the scripture word for word, line by line, so meticulously that if they were copying a line and one letter didn't fit on the same place it was on the original, they started over. These guys knew the word, so much so that when Herod asks, hey, where's this Messiah supposed to be born? What do they do? They answer him. You know what they didn't have to do? Look it up. They quoted it directly because they know the word so well. These guys knew where the Messiah would be, and now the rumors are spreading that the Messiah has come. 
And so what do these religious leaders, the shepherds of God's people, what do they do? A whole lot of nothing. They go back and they stuff their faces in the Word of God, ignoring the arrival of the Son of God. It's not just them. All Jerusalem knew why these foreigners had come. The wise men traveled at least 900 miles to come see the Christ. But the people of God, born in the city of God, living in the city of God, do nothing. Okay? The star that the wise men followed is like hanging out over their head. And they're like, oh, there's a star there. It's like right over that house. I don't know. It seems like a lot. I'm probably just going to go to bed. They do nothing. The Savior, the Messiah that they've been waiting for for thousands of years has come, and they couldn't be bothered to respond to it. Thus is the indifference of the people of God to the move and work of God. And this response is frighteningly common in the church today. You mean in the world today? I mean in the church today. So many Christians, they walk into the house of God and they sing the praises of the creator and sustainer of life, of Jesus who died on the cross for their sins and rose to give them new life. They sing his praises with less enthusiasm than they do shower karaoke. They listen to the word. They check the I went to church this week box. And they go on their merry way. There are a lot of Christians who know how to act, who know how to talk, who know how to look right. And from all external sources, they seem right. You would never know by looking at them. If you give them a theology test, they'll pass it. They'll, some of them ace it. But for all their knowledge of Jesus... Their lives don't look that different because of him. They show up, they sing, they listen, they leave. But the growth, the transformation, the pursuit of Jesus, the seeking Jesus, the longing for Jesus with every fiber of their being, the desire for more of him, that is strangely absent from their life. So they'll come, they'll hear, they'll say the right things, they'll know the right things, but when it comes time to actually doing the things that Jesus calls them to do and following the example Jesus calls them to follow, they are remarkably indifferent. Perhaps the most common response to Jesus from his people is a radical indifference to the work that he's doing all around them. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him, Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So the wise men arrive. They're asking about where is this king of the Jews. Herod calls them in 
to have a secret meeting with him. And he tries to be really sneaky, but it's like, hey, you know, you go find this Jesus guy, right? Go find him. And when you do, let me know. And I'll go worship him too. That is not his plan. Herod is a peach. Let me just tell you, this guy is a wonderful delight of a human being, the kind of guy that you want to have at every Christmas party. When Herod was appointed king of the Jews by the Romans, he celebrated his newfound power by slaughtering any living relative of the dynasty that came before him. Over the course of his reign, he killed half of the Sanhedrin, executed 300 officers, murdered his wife, his mother-in-law, and his own three sons. That's how insecure he was with his power. Anyone that was a threat, anyone that could challenge him, anyone that had the potential to take from him what was his, he had killed. So delusional was this man that when he was on his deathbed, he ordered that every notable man in Jerusalem be brought into the Hippodrome, and the moment he died, they were all to be executed so that the people of God would weep rather than rejoice upon his death. He knew they weren't crying for him. He didn't care. So long as the people wept on the day he died. It gets better. If you skip down to verse 16, you see when he realizes that the wise men aren't going to come back and tell him where he can go to kill baby Jesus, he sends people out to kill every boy under the age of two born in Bethlehem and the surrounding region. He massacres them. But that's terrible. It's worse than you think. By the time he gave this instruction, Herod was already sick with the disease that was going to kill him. He was on his deathbed. He knew his time was coming soon. And still, he orders the massacre of a bunch of children, knowing that there is no chance that even if Jesus was going to rise up and take his throne, that he would ever be able to do so during his lifetime. Herod was going to be gone long before Jesus reached an age to be any real danger to him. And still he did it. Because he perceived Jesus to be a threat. And church, Herod was right. As deplorable and horrible as his actions were, he was right about Jesus. Jesus absolutely, unequivocally, is a threat to anyone who would live for themselves, govern themselves, rule their own life, be their own person, make their own decisions, determine right for wrong based on their own merit to any of us who want to be independent and be our own person and be in control of our own lives. Jesus is the greatest threat in all existence. Because church, Jesus is king. And what that means is that you and I are not If Jesus is king, that means we have no right to rule ourselves. We have no right to govern ourselves. We have no right to determine what's good and what's bad, what's good and what's evil, what's right and what's wrong, what's worth our time and what isn't. Because we are not the king. Our responsibility is to submit and surrender ourselves to him in everything and with everything. Herod understood this. 
Herod responded to the birth of Jesus with hostility because he didn't want a rival king. He didn't want someone taking his control. But that is what Jesus is. He is a threat to your control. He's a threat to your independence. He's a threat to you living for you. Verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And in going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. When the wise men find Jesus, they bow down and worship him. They rejoice with great joy that they found him. Who worships him? Herod, the air quotes, king of the Jews? The people of God who were waiting for the Messiah that God was going to send? No. The religious leaders whose job it was to lead people to God and help them grow in God. Do they worship Jesus? No. Who comes to Jesus to worship him? Foreigners. Outsiders. Heathens who all the religious people would look down on for their pagan practices. They're the ones that come. They're the ones that worship. We celebrate Christmas as a time of hope and joy. Because when there was no way, Jesus made a way. When there was no hope, Jesus became hope. When we were lost in darkness, Jesus is the light. But from the moment Jesus arrived, there have always been three different responses to him. Indifference, like the people of God. Hostility, like Herod. And worship, like the wise men. There are three responses that we have to Jesus. And the question that you should ask is, what's yours? My wife and I, we've moved a bunch of times. We did like a little appetizer sampler of all the different neighborhoods around Carolina Forest. Just, you know, because what is more fun than putting all your stuff into boxes and then taking that same stuff out of boxes in a different building? So we moved a bunch. One of the first things you do when you buy a house is get insurance. Right? You want to make sure before you've moved in that you have your house covered by insurance so if something happens, you don't lose everything. And how do we deal with insurance, right? The first thing you do, you spend, when you need it, you spend a lot of time, you research it, you want to make sure you get the best possible plan to make sure that you're covered, you pay your dues, and then the goal is to never have to think about it again, right? You want to have insurance so that you don't have to worry about anything and it's there if you need it. Church, how often is that the exact approach we take to Jesus? 
We recognize, right? We see that light. We go, look, I saw the light. I realize I need it. I'm not covered. I'm going to be in trouble for eternity. So I need to make sure that I get that insurance in place. And so we come in and we go, okay, cool. I'm going to convert. I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to say the prayer. I'm going to get baptized. That way I'm covered. I'm good. And then I really just don't want to think about it again. Right? Like what happens next? I don't know. I already got, I saw the light. I'm done, right? Then let's move on. And that's the approach we take to him. He's there if we need him. We'll turn to him if there's a problem. But we want to do as little as we can to pay our dues so that we're covered but don't have to think about it again. How often is that what we do with him? I got my security. I got myself covered. I'll show up at Christmas. I'll show up at Easter. Maybe a couple other times just to make sure, you know, I don't lapse in my payments. And off I go. Jesus is the light of the world. The problem is the light that Jesus has, it isn't stationary. It moves. You know how many times in the Bible Jesus calls us to convert to make a decision for him, to invite him into our hearts, to repeat a prayer. I'll give you a hint that rhymes with hero. What Jesus says, Mark 8, Luke 9, Luke 14, Matthew 16, if anyone would be my disciple, must deny himself daily, die to himself daily, Take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus never calls us to a destination. He calls us on a journey. He doesn't call us to come to him and then to stop. He calls us to come and follow him. Jesus says, I'm going. You come with me. It's a pursuit. What Jesus calls us to do is not just come to him. It is to follow after him. That means when he moves, we move with him. What he wants us to do, what he calls us to do, is to walk with him. Is to focus on him. Is to, to fix our eyes on him. That he would be the center of everything. The foundation of our entire lives. That he would be all consuming in our life. And it gets me about the story of the wise men. How do they find Jesus. The star. Where's the star? In the sky. You guys are doing great. You can be more confident. You can say it out loud. It's fine. Who can see the sky? See the point? We look at this whole thing like it's conversion. We look at this whole thing like it's insurance. We look at it and go, hey, I'm good because I saw the light. Literally everybody sees the light. It's in the sky. It's not hiding. It's not hard to miss. You got eyes, you see the sky. That's not enough. The people of God, they saw the light. Herod saw the light. The religious leaders, they saw the light. What they didn't do was they didn't come to Jesus. It's not enough to see the light. You need to follow it.
as anybody can see. But the call of Jesus, the commission of Jesus is not decision, not conversion, not invitation, not prayer. The invitation of Jesus and the call is to discipleship. It's to follow him. And that what separates those who belong to Jesus from those who don't is not who saw the light and who didn't. It's who loved Jesus enough to leave their home, to leave their comfort zone, and to follow him. To go where he says go, to do what he says do. To let him be the light of our life. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not just the way. He's the light that guides us along the way. He's the gate that we enter through. See all those things tie together? Every aspect of it is about Jesus. Jesus is the gate that we enter through. He's the path that we take to get to the gate. He's the light that guides us on the path that we take to get to the gate. Every aspect of it is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Light it's sort of this powerful image in Scripture because light is the means through which we see. That's what Jesus is meant to be in our lives. The means through which we see. Jesus becomes the lens through which we see everything else. So that our values are filtered through Jesus. Our priorities are filtered through Jesus. Our views and agenda filtered through Jesus. Our decisions and choices through Jesus. Our political views and social views through Jesus. Our understanding of right and wrong through Jesus. Truth and life through Jesus. Jesus becomes the lens through which we see everything else. Is that how we really treat him? How often do we go through life, we live, we do our day stuff and all the busyness and the hecticness of what's going on around us and we live it out and at the end of the day we go, hey, I'm going to say a prayer to make sure I spend some time with Jesus. When is Jesus the focus of how you treat that person at work that drives you crazy? When was the last time you looked at that hurting person through the lens of Jesus? of that broken person through the lens of Jesus. At that person who has a very different political view than you have through the lens of Jesus. Jesus is the light, the means by which we see everything else. And the desire and pursuit of our hearts should be to see everything through Jesus. There have always been three responses to the Savior of the world. Hostility, being that you're in this room, not probable, which leaves two. Indifference and worship. Can I tell you something? Of those three choices, only one of them makes no sense. And it's the choice that the people of God so often make. Herod's response makes sense. It absolutely makes sense. 
If we understood who Jesus was, if we really understand it, there are only actually two responses to him, and that is worship and absolute life devotion and hostility. Herod actually understood who Jesus was in a way that the people of God often overlook. Jesus left no room for indifference. When you look at your life, as your average day, not at a highlight reel, not at a couple of good moments, when you look at your regular day-to-day life, what does it look like? Does it look like dutiful obligation, indifference to Jesus? Or does it look like a passionate pursuit of Jesus? Because worship, it's not a song. It's not the music and the words that we sing. Worship is a lifestyle. Worship is an all-encompassing attitude and focus of our hearts that comes from recognizing that Jesus is king and living accordingly. Church, the birth of Jesus is the greatest news. Our Savior came. Our Savior left heaven, left paradise beyond our wildest. You can't, in the greatest moment of your greatest imagination, conceive of the worst part of heaven. And he left it because of you and me. Out of his great love for us, our Savior has come in the world. He made a way when there was no way. He gave us a hope when we had no hope to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And this great joy of knowing that our King isn't Herod, the psychopath, it's Jesus the Savior. How can we do anything less? worship him with everything that we have. We don't just have an all-powerful king. We are so blessed to have a king who is all good and who loves us. And so as we prepare ourselves for Christmas, some of us seeing family members that we don't always get along with, dealing with emotions and issues that we would rather just leave unchecked. Perhaps our remembering the joy of Jesus coming to us, of being the king who is with us, the king who died for us, can drive us to not get caught up in all the traditions and expectations and all the little weird things around Christmas. None of those are bad. I'm not saying don't do them but that maybe He can be the emphasis and focus of our hearts and that our time with our family, with our friends in this season would be fueled by our joy that He has given to become more like Him and to share His light with others. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We are here to praise you, to worship you because you are worthy. God, my prayer is that these songs would not be hollow words, sung devoid of meaning, 
but that this would be the cry of our hearts. This would be the focus of our lives, that our yearning would be for more of you, that we would strive to have more of you, that you would stoke the flames of our desire for you. That like the wise men, we would travel hundreds of miles, crossing land and sea, risking everything just for a chance to be in your presence. Give us a passion and devotion for you that all that we do may be focused on you to bring glory to you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.